the Word of God from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 17. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, this too is worship. This too is grounds for seeing your glory. So I pray that you transform this pulpit into an altar from which a beautiful sacrifice is made to you, Lord. Father, I pray that you would cast me aside and your Holy Spirit would come down and speak truth to us. Open up your word, Lord. I confess that I have not the ability to give your people what they need. And so I pray for your Holy Spirit to come. So Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my God, my rock, and my Redeemer. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Our historical context is by the day becoming more and more like the one that prompted Peter to write this letter. By historical context, I mean the secular climate of a nation. Um, the specific social, political, religious environment in which, a in which a people live at a specific point in history. That's what I mean by historical context. You don't need a theological education to read First Peter and realize that Peter wrote this letter to address fellow Christians in need of encouragement and instruction because their historical context changed. They needed encouragement and instruction because their historical context, the secular climate in which they lived, became hostile to the faith they held. And I believe our context is, by the day, becoming more and more like theirs. Um, on October 9th, Kathy Lynn Grossman of the USA Today published an article titled, As Protestants Decline, Those with No Religion Gain. The first line of that article 
says, For decades, if not centuries, America's top religious brand has been Protestant. No more. She goes on to cite a statistic from the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life that says one in five Americans claim no religious identity. She also notes that since 2007, Protestants have slid below the 50% marker in the United States. They now account for only 48% of the U.S. population. The cultural winds in our land have shifted. We are now the minority, which means that conditions are ripe for hostility against us to escalate the way it did to our brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago in the northern parts of the Roman Empire. Now, believe it or not, that is actually good news. It's good news for two reasons. One is it crushes the argument that says that the Bible in its own context, in its own original historical context, is irrelevant to 21st century Christian life in America. USA Today has proved that the exact opposite is true. So that's the first reason. The second reason why this threat of hostility is good news is that God, in the midst of the hostility we face, has promised to do what God always does in the midst of hostility we face, namely, glorify Himself. Look back at chapter 2, verse 12 of 1 Peter. He says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of, vis on the day of visitation. God has ordained that we live upright lives in this hostile world so that when He returns, those who reviled us, those who were hostile against us, will glorify Him because of the lives that you and I lived. God will, as my friend Jonathan Hefts has said before, He will take our historical context and He will flip it. And when he does, every knee will bow, both ours and those who were hostile against us, those who persecuted us. Every knee will bow to the King of Kings on the day he returns. Now, our text this morning is Peter's final set of instructions on how we are to live, how we are to keep our conduct amidst our nation honorable so that our lives can participate in God's great purpose to glorify God. That's what our text is about. And so, given the fact that these ten verses are so relevant to our specific historical context, I want to simply lead us through them by following five movements Peter makes. The first move is verse 8. The second move is the first part of verse 9. The third move is the second half excuse me, the latter part of verse 9 through the end of verse 12. The fourth move is verses 13 and 14. And the fifth move is verses 15 to 17. So we'll take those one at a time. So move number one, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, 
brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now let's keep the context of the whole letter in mind here. These Christians are, so to speak, coming under fire for the faith, specifically in what's being said to them. And their lives are involved in God's great purpose to glorify God. So given that context, notice that Peter's first instruction has nothing to do with their relationship to those who are outside the family of faith. First and foremost, he says, we're to love each other and care for one another. The subtext here seems to me to be, look, we ain't got time to fight with one another. We need each other too badly these days. Our context is too much like those of our ancestors not to band together. These times are too hostile, or at least in our context, the the hostility of the days to come necessitates that we don't have time not to have sympathy, not to have brotherly love, not to have one mind, not to have humility and tender hearts. The secular climate in which we live now and in which we will live in the days to come is too cold to Christ. It's too cold to the gospel about Him. Not to cleave together like emperor penguins. Do you know what emperor penguins are? Emperor penguins are these penguins that in the unbearable temperatures of Arctic winters, they get together in a big ball and they just waddle. You know why they do that? They do that so that the community will not only survive, it will also thrive in conditions in which they should not make it at all. That's what we have to be like. We have to unite in love. We have to unite in verse 8 if we hope to thrive in the spiritual winter that seems to be on its way in the United States. So that's the first move. Now, the second move. The first part of verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called. I'm sorry. I didn't want to read that second part. The first part of verse 9 is, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. That's the part I want to look at. Now, think about how difficult that is. Not to repay evil for evil. Not to repay insult for insult. It's so natural to want to do that. It's so natural to want to repay evil for evil. It's so natural to want to return insult for insult. But what happens if we do? We become a spectacle to the watching world. Uh, My fiancé and I just finished watching The Hatfields and the McCoys. Um, The Hatfields and McCoys is a three-part miniseries based on uh, a true story about an actual family feud It took place between two families, the Hatfields of West Virginia and the McCoys of Kentucky. Um, This feud took place in the years right after the Civil War. And as you watch the film, and if you do some reading about the historical details, you realize it's this natural impulse to repay evil for evil that's fueling the feud. That's the kerosene that kept this fire between these two families burning. And at the end of the film, Randall McCoy is standing on a hilltop 
and he's about to watch a member of the Hatfield family executed for murdering one of his daughters. And a man and his wife come up and they stand next to him. And the wife says to the, to the husband, what are we doing here? And the man says, the Hatfields and McCoys are famous. And then she says, for what? And then he says, killing each other. The Hatfields of West Virginia and the McCoys of Kentucky literally became a spectacle to the watching world because they insisted on repaying evil for evil. So will we if we do the same. So we have to remember chapter 2, verse 12, that God's will is to glorify Himself by the lives we live in front of the watching hostile world. So we will not repay evil for evil. We will not return insult for insult. But on the contrary, we will bless. We will bless those who curse us. Why? Because of what Peter says next. For to this you were called. Now that phrase, for to this you have been called, begins Peter's third move in this text. This third move, as I said earlier, spans from the latter part of verse 9 to the end of verse 12. Now, as I was studying this text, um, I mulled over it again and again and again and again. Because if you just read it, you kind of are taken back a little bit about what's going on here. And as I continued to think about it, I realized this move he makes right here is arguably the most important. I say that because here Peter answers the question with unusual depth. Mark that unusual depth about why we should obey verse 8 in the first part of verse 9. Now think about this for a second, okay? Why did he not just say, do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, because to this you have been called. Period. End of sentence. Next verse. Next subject. He could have done that. He could have called us to it. He says, you, the Lord Jesus has called you to live this way. Do it. But he doesn't do that. He's already made his point. He's already answered the question. Why we should obey, verse 8, and the, second, and the, the first part of verse 9, because to this life, to this way of life amongst the Gentiles, amongst the uh, people in which we live today, that's what we've been called to. So why all this talk about obtaining or inheriting a blessing? And then, what does Psalm 34 have to do with anything that he's saying? Now, I want to answer that by setting up a scenario. The Family Research Council and Liberty Council recently published a 135-page report of instances of growing hostility against Christians in America. In that report there is an account of a public school official who during a, actually in a cafeteria just like this one, the tables were set up like this, he walks over and he takes um, a student, takes him out of his seat and reprimands him publicly in front of all the other students for praying over his lunch. Now, if that was your child, what would you need not to repay evil for evil? What would you need not to return insult for insult, wrong for wrong? 
I don't have children, but if I did, I would need something more than a summons. I would need something more than just the fact that I've been called. I would need power. I would need strength. I would need something outside of myself to give me the ability to obey that which I've been called to. And that's exactly what Peter's doing with Psalm 34. That's exactly what he's giving us by answering that question, why we should obey verse 8 and verse 9. That's what he's doing. He's answering that with unusual depth to give us what we need. He says we've been called to love one another and to bless those who curse us so that we might obtain or inherit a blessing. Now, how does he know that? How does he know that? How does he know that if, if I'm the parent and I go up to that school official and I don't return evil for evil, how does he know I'll obtain a, a blessing? The only thing it looks like I'm going to hear from that is pain. So where is he getting that from? He's getting that from the rock-solid truth of the Word of God in Psalm 34. Let me read to you the quotation. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Do you see what Peter is saying here about the Old Testament? He's saying the Old Testament Scriptures are a sufficient rock on which you can stake, build, and shape your Christian life. You can live your life assured and confirmed that what they bear witness about the way things are is the way things actually are. He says, you can be assured that what Psalm 34 says about reality is true and trustworthy. Why? Because it is a word from the God who made reality. He is convinced that the Old Testament is still brick and mortar on which we can build this life of our spiritual Christian walk. And to that he says that these parents will inherit a blessing when they bless that school official who cursed their child. And why will you inherit a blessing if you do not repay insult for insult? Because of Psalm 34, 16, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Let me, let me try to explain what that means. That means that when you are at work, when you are at school, when you are in public, when you are at a red light, wherever you are, and something happens, someone comes up to you and they talk to you in a way that is less than human, and you bow your head, and you pray a blessing over them in the name of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the eyes of the living God are watching you. Psalm 34, 16 promises. That's the power. It promises. It promises that when you do that, when you bless that school official who does that to your child for praying over his lunch as you have taught him, when you do that, when you bless those who abuse you, 
God's eyes are on you. And His ears are listening when you pray to Him for help. That's the power we need. And that's what Peter's doing. He takes that truth of Psalm 34, 16. It's sufficient for what he knows his people need in that context. He takes that truth and he interjects it into their historical context because he knows without it, what the Lord has commanded them to do will not happen. And then, what? God will not be glorified. And God's mission is always to glorify God. I was so encouraged when I discovered that in my study of this passage because I realized that's what I need. That's the power that I need. That's the power of the Word of God that will change us from the inside out and enable us to bless those who abuse us. That's the power that will cause you to bless that school official who reprimands your child. That's the power, who, that's the power that will give you victory over the sin that keeps getting cutting in your path and hindering you from following the faith you know you've been called to. And when you do that, when you live like that, when you live God's way in a godless world, you need not fight back. You need not fight back. Why? Because the eyes of the Lord are on you. He's watching you. He's with you. He's holding your hand, as it were. So that's the third move. The fourth move. So having made that point, Peter in verse 13 and 14 then moves a fourth time and then he asks, Well, who then is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? If the Lord's with you, what have you to be afraid of? Well, what's his answer to that? His answer to that is nobody. For if you're zealous for what is good, then the eyes of the Lord are on you. His ears are open to your prayer. His presence is with you. Who's there left to harm you? Peter's answer is nobody. To which he anticipates the question, which we would all ask and should ask, well, that's true. Why are we still suffering? Listen to Peter's answer in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake... You will be blessed. Now, I'm a Greek nerd. I like studying the Greek text. So, to me, that translation seems a bit loose. Now, let me tell you why. The Greek reads, but even if you were to suffer for righteousness, comma, blessed. No verb, just blessed. Now, to me, based on how Peter uses Psalm 34, uh, 16 and verse 12, he seems to be saying this. You could get the implication that, okay, if, if I suffer now, I will be blessed later. But to me, the more literal rendering would be, there is no point in your suffering for that which is good that you are not at the exact same time blessed. So there's no point where you experience suffering and do not experience blessing. So, to me, that is awesome news awesome news. It's awesome because we don't have to be afraid of any hostility that may be on the horizon. By the power of God, in Psalm 34, 16, we can rejoice rather than retreat from whatever may take place in our days ahead. 
So that's why Peter says at the end of verse 14, have no fear of them and do not be troubled. Instead, and here we're moving into the fifth move. Peter's fifth and final move, he says, regard Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts. Now another way of saying that would be sanctify the Lord in your hearts. Now these, then he says, we're to do this, how? How are we are to do that? He says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That's very important that we understand specifically what Peter's saying here. When we are asked to give a reason or a defense or an apology for the hope that we have, we must. We must not argue on the world's terms. We must not play their game. We won't look for the least common denominator and and see where we're compatible with what they're saying. We will not play that game. That's not what this verse is saying when Peter says, be ready to make a defense. Peter says that Christ is the reason for the hope that is in you. Therefore, Christ is the reason that you will give for the hope that is in you. you. And, he says, to those that ask you, to the one who asks you. That's why he calls us to sanctify Jesus in our hearts. Because the more precious he becomes, the more powerful our defense will be. Now, a good and natural question to ask when he says that, so is Peter telling us to put our brains in our pockets? Is he telling us to stop thinking? Is he telling us to stop asking questions? No. No. Is he telling us to stop listening to the questions that are brought to us? No, not at all. Because how does Christ become more holy in our hearts? How do we sanctify the Lord in our hearts? I am amazed at how often the New Testament's answer to that question is we think about Him. There are many passages... I started listing them and I thought, there's, a, there's so many to go. Let me just pick one. So I decided to just pick one passage to, to show this connection. I want to read to you a prayer from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3 where he shows that honest, thoughtful reflection about Christ enlarges our capacity to see His glory and thereby sanctify Him in our hearts. So what He's calling us to do happens when we think about what's in the Bible. Let me read to you this prayer from Ephesians chapter 3. This is Ephesians 3, 14 to 18. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you here it is, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that, now here we go again, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, now listen to this, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. If you are a Christian, the harder you think about Jesus Christ, the more you mine the Scriptures for the truth about Him, the more holy He will become in your heart. 
And the more that that happens, the less you need to fear about having something to say when you're called to give a defense for your presence here today. But then, now look in verse 16. He says, we are to do this. We're to defend the hope we have with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience. So that when we are slandered, when we do meet the world's hostility, those who mock and revile our way of life in Christ will be ashamed of what they said. Now after that, after Peter says that, he finishes our text. He says, For it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil, if that should be the will of God. Now, to close out our time, I want us to think about that last verse. For it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil, if that should be the will of God. Now, I'm going to be very honest. I can see how verse 17, if you thought about it, as I just exhorted us to, would be extremely difficult to hear. That God might cause us, His chosen sons and daughters whom He loves and whom He saves, that He might will that we suffer. I can see how that can be very hard to wrap your mind around. And in response to that, I want to say that Satan often twists text. He often takes one verse and twists it. And when he does that, he somehow makes us forget all the rest. Yes, God sometimes wills that we suffer for doing good. But no, He never wills that you suffer for doing good alone. Peter says again and again in this letter, we suffer because Christ suffered. And the witness of the New Testament is, if we suffer with Christ now, we certainly will share in His glory later. So those of you who are suffering now and who find it very difficult to hear verse 17, and to all of us who no doubt we'll suffer to some degree in the days ahead for our commitment to Christ. I want you to hear this word from the same Lord who permits your pain. I want to end our time by reading to you a passage that in the midst of inexplicable pain again and again has been the balm that has soothed my soul and has allowed me to walk in the midst of extremely difficult times. This is Isaiah 43. We sing this often. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You are precious in my eyes and honored. And I 
love you. That's the God who spoke this world into being with all the power that He has, saying, I love you. Fear not, He says, for I am with you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, these are challenging verses. They cause us to wrestle with issues that we may or may not have wanted to face this morning. But it is your word, and it's the next text. And so as a preacher, I must be faithful to it. And so, Lord, where I have erred, where I have been unclear, where I have failed, O Lord, would you come and would you minister to your people? Would you bless them, O Lord? And may each of our lives participate in your great mission to glorify you. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, who is with us now and forever. Amen.